Welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast, insights and ideas for RIAs presented by Dynasty Financial Partners, a podcast dedicated to sharing some of the best practices, fresh thinking, and new perspectives in the independent wealth management industry. Your host for today's episode is Ed Friedman, Director at Dynasty Financial Partners. Welcome to the Dynasty Powering Independence Podcast. This is Ed Friedman. I am your host for today's podcast entitled Legal, Compliance, and Freedom, Part 1. At first blush, the title of this episode might seem like a bit of an oxymoron. Not many of our listeners would think of pairing the words legal and compliance with freedom, but one of the goals of the podcast is to be a bit provocative. Many of the industry's top advisors make the move to independence to have the freedom to serve clients in an unconflicted manner and to flee the big banks and wirehouses in pursuit of that freedom. Many of those banks and wirehouses set policies and procedures that cater to the lowest common denominator of advisors, which inherently, and I would argue improperly, restricts some of the industry's top advisors. Add to that some of the recent firm exits from the protocol in an attempt to lock those advisors in, and you have the makings of an interesting and lively discussion. I'm thrilled to introduce our panel of experts who will help us unpack this topic. First, we have Sharon Ash, Chief Litigation Counsel at Hamburger Law Firm, which works side-by-side with its affiliate Market Counsel, a leading business and regulatory compliance consultancy to independent investment advisors. Sharon leads Hamburger Law's employment transition, commercial litigation, and counsels advisors considering opening their own firm. With over 20 years of experience, Sharon has distinguished herself in the independent wealth management industry. Our next guest, Lee Emery, may sound familiar to you since she is the voice of the Dynasty Powering Independence podcast, but her day job is as Dynasty's chief compliance officer. Prior to joining Dynasty, Lee held compliance positions at Blackstone and Constellation Advisors, and Lee, over her career, has worked with hundreds of advisors with compliance needs, including SEC registrations, implementation of compliance procedures and SEC examinations, something that nobody wants to go through, but certainly we all have to. She's been exceptional working with firms in the Dynasty Network, meeting their compliance requirements, and I'm thrilled to have Lee join us on today's podcast. Next up, we have Michael Henley, founder and CEO of Brandywine Oak Private Wealth. Michael brings more than a dozen years of experience in providing financial advice and guidance to highly successful families. Previously, he led his wealth advisory team at Merrill Lynch Wealth Management, and Michael has worked closely with affluent individuals and families, helping them streamline the complexities of significant wealth. Michael was recognized by Forbes as one of America's top next-generation wealth advisors, being ranked number one in Delaware and number 42 in the nation for 2018. Michael, congratulations on those accolades, and welcome to the podcast. And last but certainly not least, I'd like to welcome Allison Brooks. Allison served as an investment analyst at Merrill Lynch, which she joined back in 2005. She is now the COO and co-founder of Brandywine Oak Private Wealth. Allison regularly meets with existing clients to help ensure their wealth strategies are in line with their long-term family wealth plan. Allison also assists with tax planning, tax modeling, optimizing family and charitable gifting, and portfolio rebalancing. And Allison, welcome to the podcast. So let's jump uh, right in. I think the logical place to start our discussion is at the beginning. And at the beginning is really the launching of an independent firm. And since most of the firms in the dynasty network and in the industry in general now start as breakaways, um, I think a great place to start is with Sharon Ash. And Sharon, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about the protocol. If you can give us a current state of affairs as it relates to protocol, how did we get here? And more importantly, where do you think we're going to be going? Sure. Um, The protocol, just uh, so that everyone can have an understanding as to the importance of it, is a tool that if you can use it, it can be a meaningful part of a breakaway strategy. Um, And so the primary benefits of the protocol, um, it is a ceasefire amongst industry firms. It is a voluntary agreement, and it has been in existence now since 2004. Since that time, you've seen it from an original um, collection of three firms that started the protocol, all the way up to now more than 1,800 firms, many of which are registered investment advisors. 
The primary benefits are that it's a ceasefire agreement. It means that so long as you follow the rules, even if you have a non-solicit restriction as to your clients, you will be permitted to solicit those clients. You'll be permitted to tuck a list of client information under your arm on the way out the door to help facilitate particularly those initial conversations that can be so important immediately after um, a resignation. Um, in terms of, uh, of where we are today, well, certainly probably the most noteworthy developments of the protocol are that over the past two years, you've seen um, founding firms depart from the protocol. Um, so initially, we saw Morgan Stanley as the first departure, followed shortly thereafter by UBS, and then Citi uh, came shortly thereafter. Now, um, the significance of those departures, I think, is really more psychological than real. Um, but it did generate an awful lot of news at the time, and it continues to fuel speculation at this point. It was anticipated at that time that this was going to be the, the breakdown of the protocol for broker recruiting. It would cease to exist, and it would have a domino effect on other member uh, firms. Really what we saw was that transitions continued to happen, Transitions continued to happen even out of those firms that had withdrawn from the protocol, but they happened differently. And that's really where we spend a great deal of our time is planning transitions that are either from those firms, Morgan Stanley, UBS, um, or from firms even that don't, didn't have protocol membership to begin with. So it has impacted how do those transitions happen, but it, um, it still continues to be a very viable tool in the industry. You'll still have firms joining every week that join on to the protocol. So we continue to watch for um, changes as firms make decisions as to what's appropriate for them. I think that's a really good point um, that, you know, people are still making a move. There was a life in a recruiting world before protocol existed and advisors moved and, and changed firms. And there's going to continue to be, I think, a life, to your point, on recruiting and advisors moving, even with those firms that are exiting. Um, protocol. Sharon, could you comment on, uh, say, an advisor at Morgan Stanley, for example, that's a non-protocol firm? If that advisor spent his or her career at a protocol firm like a Merrill Lynch, for example, so they built their practice at Merrill Lynch and then subsequently went over to Morgan Stanley in the last five years, for example, if they were to leave and go ahead and go independent, um, how would protocol apply to that sort of advisor? So the protocol itself um, would not apply in that Morgan Stanley has withdrawn from the protocol, but themes of the protocol may survive that withdrawal. So it becomes critically important in a scenario like that to really encourage those advisors, spend a weekend, look in the basement. You may have moved three times since you joined Morgan Stanley, but it's worth spending a weekend going through those dusty boxes to see if you can find your agreements. Um, the reason is, is that you may have a carve out. You may have a contractual right to continue to apply what I would call protocol light. So it doesn't specifically mention the protocol, but you have a right to move the book that you brought with you, for example, from your previous firm, you have a right to take limited information that we just have to test against current privacy rules and laws, which, as we all know, continue to change. Got it. So, Michael, thank you. That was a great um, question. And I'm going to turn to you and to Allie uh, on that. You guys left Merrill Lynch about a year ago. You're almost one year out. I think in August is your one-year anniversary of Brandywine. So Brandywine Oaks, so congratulations on that. Talk a little bit about your protocol um, preparation for that move. Sure, happy to, Ed. Um, protocol for us was a, was a godsend. Um, we took a very conservative approach overall. As I, We as a firm have really no appetite for litigation or legal action. Um, so being able to, you know, to abide by the protocol stipulations around what information we're able to take um, for us was, was very you know, rewarding. Um, it allowed us to be able to contact our clients immediately after resigning from Merrill Lynch. Um, so for us, it's been, a, it's been a great thing. Definitely. And I think our, our clients definitely understood you know, the process that we were going through. And they don't mind re, uh, giving us that information all over again. They really don't. They understand. I think they'd rather us you know, continue to succeed and thrive and, and not be open to litigation at all. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. Clients, we explain to clients that we're not able to take every piece of their financial information. Certain information we were able to take, like their contact information and what have you, but they don't expect us to have their tax returns and their prior estate documents, et cetera. They completely understand that, and they've been very responsive around you know, being happy to provide those documents to us again on a go-forward basis. Yeah, I guess it's all in the messaging and the, the presentation Absolutely. Um, to mm-hmm. the clients. So, all right, so a firm is getting ready to, or an advisor team, to break away to set up their own firm. They've gone through the protocol work with somebody like Sharon and the folks at Market Council. But Lee, they have to set their firm up from a compliance perspective. Most advisors have been great advisors at their firms, but have relied on the firm's compliance and everything that needed to be done. So I'm sure there was kind of a compliance checklist, if you will, that they have to walk through in the setting up of their firm. Yeah, I think that you know it's so critical in that moment, in my view, that you have the right partner in your corner to set up that compliance program. Because I think that a big mistake that new firms make is either they pull sort of a templated you know compliance program off the shelf and just institute it at their new firm, which is not going to fly, as Sharon and I have seen in the course of SEC exams. Um, in addition to that, I think that, that the education piece is so critical. You need somebody who's going to be able to stand by your side and say, okay, here's, like you said, the checklist of things that you need to do. You need to have a named chief compliance officer at your firm. You need to have certain written policies and procedures, and they have to cover certain provisions of the Advisors Act. And, you know, there's so many things to think about in doing that, but you don't want to go too far, right? You don't want to create a compliance program that is going to be something you'll trip over. I always say, I don't want my advisors tripping over their own tail. So yes, you need those things, but I like our advisors in the Dynasty Network to live somewhere in the middle of the -the off-the-shelf compliance program and something that is way overly onerous that they're never going to be able to live with on a day-to-day basis. So for me, that process starts with, you know, the discussions during the break is how do we set up a compliance program that is sufficient but that you can live with day-to-day as you grow your business and allow it to evolve with you as you grow. I think that's an interesting point. And I think as we work with advisors, um, certainly you and I on a regular basis and and Sharon with advisors that are breaking away, you might have two different types of of advisors. Ones that want to be really involved and think that they've got to be overly um, compliant in the way they set things up. And then others who, again, either want to delegate that to somebody else or be as uninvolved Uh, as possible. So part of, I think, uh, the important function of setting up the firm is designating the right person in the firm to be that liaison and the chief compliance officer from a regulatory standpoint. Lee, if you could talk a little bit about what you've seen, and then Ali and Michael, I'd love to hear your experiences on that as you set the firm up. Yeah, absolutely. I think, to your point, choosing the right chief compliance officer is paramount to to setting up the right program. I would say that the majority of the network CCOs that we have have never dealt with compliance before. They are not compliance professionals by nature, and they've certainly never dealt with the RAA space the majority of the time. So, you know, the first thing that we really do is uh, help them to select the right person on their staff. It needs to be somebody who is sort of operationally you know, minded, they're detail-oriented, they're hungry to learn about what it is that they need to know to be the CCO. But in addition to that, somebody of sufficient authority in the firm, someone who's not going to be steamrolled, right? I, we talked about this a bit uh, earlier, but I often find that I get questions about, well, can my you know, receptionist be my chief compliance officer? And, and that always cracks me up. No is the answer to that question. Um, there isn't particular licensure on the RAA side that a CCO needs, like the broker-dealer side, um, but it does need to be somebody who really can affect change in the organization. So um, as I said, I mean, most of our CCOs don't have any background experience, so we take them through what we call the CCO crash course, and it's really sort of the the matrix download into their brain of what do you really need to know day to day to run this compliance program efficiently and sufficiently. Um, but again, we don't want them to feel like they need to be a compliance expert. That's what they have, you know, their partners for and partners like Dynasty, partners like Market Council. This is why you, you know, you go out and find the right people to be in your corner. And I'll say that I think Brandy Oak did a fantastic job of this in choosing their chief compliance officer, Brittany. She is just all of the things I mentioned. Absolutely sufficiently senior, very detail-oriented, and really hungry to understand what she needs to know day-to-day to run the compliance program and to help grow the business. 
Well, first, let me say I'm thrilled that Brittany got a shout-out on our podcast. A much-deserved shout-out. A much-deserved. <laughs> um, Allie, how did you guys choose Brittany? Honestly, we kind of knew right from the get-go that she'd be the right person for the role. Um, she's someone that had enough industry experience, um, which would give her the confidence needed to succeed in the role itself. Because you, you do. You need someone that's willing to stand up to anyone in the firm and, and lay down the law and say this is the way things are supposed to go. And we have the respect for her to, to listen to her and follow suit. Well, I think that's an important point. It's not just wearing the badge of sheriff. Mm-hmm. But being it's able to being execute mm-hmm. uh, and being the, the sheriff. Yep. And if I could just add to that, I think that um, every breakaway, uh, like you guys when you were setting up um, Brandywine, you have the opportunity to really set up your firm for what culture you want. Part of that culture is your compliance culture and understanding what your task is going to be, not just in those first few months or even the first year when you hit that one-year mark, but also looking ahead towards that first SEC exam, being prepared for that and relying upon um, those uh, external resources who have the sufficient and more extensive um, experience to be able to prepare you for that. You know, the worst thing that you want to have happen in an SEC exam, whether it's your first one or your 10th one, is that your chief compliance officer and even your compliance program is exposed as just that book that's sitting on the shelf, that it really has never been integrated into the day-to-day affairs of the company and how you run your firm. And I would just add to that that um, having done this ourselves, um, having Lee and Sharon in our corner has been unbelievable. And I will happily say they're rock stars. I mean, having them kind of defending you and explaining the kind of the, the laws of the land, if you will, has been critically important. Because coming from the kind of the wirehouse world, you don't know what you don't know. And you're in a broker-dealer standard going to an RIA, a full fiduciary standard. So it's a higher level of care, if you will. So not knowing that, you know, it's kind of a new world for us. Um, having, you know, fantastic partners has been been critical. Well, perfect. And Sharon, those were great insights. And I want to ask you, as you've been doing this for quite a while, working with advisors, helping them launch a firm, what have you seen as some of the top mistakes that they've made, number one? And number two... Um, and and we, we have this discussion with advisors all the time, many of them may be on some type of prom note or deal when they first came over and they're leaving some on the table, and I think they all believe that they can beat the firm and, and, uh, and get out of the, the balance of it, which always seems to be a, a misunderstanding, uh, if you will. So if you could touch on those two topics, I think it would be interesting. Sure. I mean, I think that the those two topics are, are somewhat interrelated because the number one mistake that we see are advisors who are managing or seeking to manage their transition um, sort of by committee or by the Internet, online research. You know, they go out and they poll other advisors that have left before them and say, well, how did you do it? What did you do? Um, and uh, it is it is not unusual at all that we'll have a team come to us and say, well, you know, I spoke to my buddy who left uh, five years ago, and this is what he did. And he left, and he very deliberately printed out a list, and then he started calling all his clients. He sent out a blast email and said, well, it's interesting that your buddy left five years ago. Are you aware that when he left, he had the protections of the protocol, and you do not, right? That's a really simple example of why you have to understand why one transition is uh, is like another. You know, I've, um, I joke that I've been running the transitions now for almost 10 years, um, and I'm still waiting for those cookie-cutter transitions <laughs> where they're exactly the same. They're just not. Um, so that would really be the primary mistake that I see, and a classic example of where they poll others' experience is with respect to promissory notes. And, you know, my buddy paid a nickel, a nickel right. on the dollar on the way out the door, um, but that was 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. My favorite um, recruiting story when I was a manager at Morgan Stanley running my very first office, I recruited an advisor from what was then Prudential, which has ultimately become Wells Fargo. And uh, it was pre-protocol, but it was a pretty um, protocol-like transition until I got a call from the legal department to find out that the advisor prior to joining me went into their uh, client system and changed everybody's phone number so that the new inheriting advisors would not be able to get anybody on the phone. That was one of my my favorites. And, you you know, I I obviously confronted the advisor and just got kind of this blank stare, like, oh, I couldn't do that? (laughs) 
<laughs> so, you know, that, that was interesting. But, you know, Ed, um, you bring up a really interesting point because for those firms that um, have already broken away who may be listening and they're considering bringing somebody on board as a tuck-in, for example, to their firm, seeing the type of behavior that you've just outlined where someone took something on the way out the door that they should not have taken, um, if you don't have control of that process up front and know exactly what the transition plan is that's going to be executed to bring somebody into your firm – not only are you exposing what you've built to that risk that you are not in control of, but more importantly, you've had insight into what's this person going right. to be like when they leave you, right? You've gotten a preview of that movie. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or what they might be as an advisor inside of your firm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Compliance um, culture, right, Lee? <laughs> exactly. And to that point, uh, and Lee and, and Sharon, I'll throw this out to you. We know the SEC is tar- starting to take a little bit of a stronger look at what they might refer to as repeat offenders, right? Advisors that have a regulatory history of some consistent issues and what that means for a new firm that they may join because a lot of firms, as we know, are starting to look at inorganic growth, tuck-ins, as you just referenced, Sharon. So as a firm that is looking to grow that way, should they stay away entirely from these quote-unquote repeat offenders or what would they or should they be doing in preparation uh, if they do bring somebody on? So I think from our perspective, you look at a situation like that as any other transition. So you start at the beginning. Um, you know, what are your objectives in bringing this person over and understanding what their risks are so that you can gain an understanding as to what risks you're willing to take on or not take on as the owner of the business that's, that's going to be bringing them in. Um, But when it comes to someone who has a reason for their departure, um, this is maybe not a uh, uh, not a just a resignation. This could be that they're facing some sort of regulatory sanction that they're trying to monetize their business before that happens. You really need to be looking at what is the scope of that regulatory related issue because it could have an impact depending on the role that that person may play at your firm. You have to be considering how are we going to transition these clients over. Otherwise, you could be paying for assets that you're not actually going to realize um, by them becoming clients of your firm. And you may end up getting sort of dirtied by the dust that this regulatory action kicks up. It could require a disclosure on the part of your firm, again, depending on the role that that person is going to play at your firm. So it is, uh, it's not a good idea to sort of run into those transactions, as tempting as it may be, where someone's coming to you and saying, hey, I want you to be my buyer. That can be a very um, tempting scenario, but you really need to pause and break down exactly what, what baggage is coming along with that transition. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think, you know, I I love the title of this podcast, right? It's Legal Compliance and Freedom. That's true. This is your business now. You're free to make these decisions, but this is also your business now. So now you need to justify them, right? You need to be prepared for the liability and the accountability that comes along with that freedom. And as you said, Ed, you know, the SEC is really focused on if you're tucking in what they consider to be a bad actor. And as Sharon said, sometimes that can trigger disclosures that now your firm needs to make even to your legacy clients. Those disclosures can hang around for up to 10 years sometimes. You really need to be aware of who it is that you're bringing into your business and how that is shifting the culture and, and you know, your reputation in the marketplace. Yeah, so not necessarily to be seduced by the numbers, mm. right, but think about it more on a long term. Uh, basis and the impact to your firm. And if I could just add one more comment there, because you're right, Ed, you have to think about the long term. We recently had uh, a client who vetted someone on his own and determined that he was going to go ahead and bring in an advisor that was facing an SEC uh, regulatory proceeding. Um, And that advisor felt comfortable doing the deal on his own because he was bringing over the staff that was going to help now retain those clients. So he felt like he was in a good position until 12 years, uh, 12 months, excuse me, 12 months and a day later when a restriction expired and that junior team 
said, thanks for having us. And they left mm -hmm. and they sought to take the book of business with them that he had just paid for. So it is really important for so many reasons, not just compliance, but business reasons as well, to understand how are you going to structure this. And you need to really have a deliberate, a deliberate plan in place to be able to do that successfully. Absolutely. I have to think about the long term, uh, you know, to that point. So Michael and Allie, again, congratulations. Brandywine Oak is coming up on a year. So talk to me a little bit about surprises, positive or negative, that you've experienced, if you will, over that past year um, and setting up this compliance culture that both Sharon and Lee have been talking about. Was it hard for you to do? So I'll start with the surprises. So first and foremost, um, about a month after launching our new firm, um, the original name of our firm was Wyeth Private Wealth. It was after, named after a local artist in the community, uh, Andrew Wyeth. And effectively, about a month after starting our firm, we heard from the Wyeth family around um, using their family name without permission, et cetera, et cetera. We had no emotional attachment to the name. Um, so we chose to go ahead and do a name change about a month after launching. So you can imagine after calling you know, a couple hundred families who entrust us with their entire financial lives um, and surprising them with that we left Merrill Lynch, that was a surprise enough for them. They agreed to come with us, of course. Um, but a month after launching, explaining to them there's going to be a name change, that was you know, a lovely exercise. I think what we found, A, that we like our new name a thousand times more. And we absolutely, we can't even imagine being called our prior name, A. As do our clients and families. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> And B, effectively, the name didn't mean that much to them. We were shocked. They said, are we still with you? Fine. And they said, basically, the name did not mean anything to them at all, which we expected them to be somehow attached to this new name. I don't know what we were thinking there. <laughs> um, but all in all, that was probably the most compelling surprise, I would say. And going independent, starting your own business, I would say to Sharon and Lee's points, um, it's your own business. So you really can't put a price or can't put into words how gratifying and how rewarding it is. But having said that, the liability is on your shoulders. So your reputation is, is really everything. Um, so when it comes to tuck-ins or adding other you know, planning-focused advisors to our firm, we really want to be thoughtful and do our due diligence around their background, making sure they're a good cultural fit from a compliance standpoint. Because at a big you know, box retailer like a Bank of America or Merrill Lynch, um, and you can kind of blame the firm or we didn't hire them or whatever it is. When you're, you know, you're independent, um, anyone you bring onto the firm really represents your brand. Right. So I think that's... Yeah, no, that's really important. And it's, you brought up uh, an interesting idea, which I hear a lot of times from advisors, which is the loyalty that the clients have to them and not necessarily to the old firm that they were with, or in this particular case, the name, right? I mean, I can imagine how that call went. You talk to them about transitioning over to Wyeth, and then you call them a month later and say, remember when we told you our name? We were just kidding. <laughs> um, we're now Brandywine Oak, and we think you're going to like that. Um, much better. The other thing I always hear from advisors when I ask them the question about surprises, both positive and negative, the one thing that they always say was that they learned they should have done this a long time ago, mm. that oh, this move to independence and freedom. So talk a little bit about that, Allie, from the perspective of what it took for you and Michael to make that decision, right, and then kind of take that leap. Sure. So, I mean, it's not something you take lightly. You put a lot of preparation into it. Um, but once you start looking into it, you realize that you really can't stay at the wirehouse. I mean, you're just you realize that it's just not the right place for you. It's not the right place for the families that you work with. Um, I think one thing that was just it's so overwhelming in a good way was the client's reaction to this. Um, they were just so, so positive. Um, it was so encouraging. They really and it's it's a business that you're so very much proud of. Um, so to see them, you know, really on your side. And, and wholeheartedly supporting you in your decision, it just makes it that much better. Great. And Michael, I'm a little surprised when I asked you the question. One of the surprises you didn't reference was inside of your first year getting the knock on the door for that SEC audit. That's the one I was waiting for. Yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> that, was, that was a positive surprise. One surprise at a time, yeah. <laughs> so you guys have just gone through it. I know that there's not been any type of letter uh, or findings on the audit. But you did go through the process. I know that Lee Emery was by your side uh, the whole time. Thankfully. Couldn't do um, it without her. There you go. So if you guys could talk a little bit about the process. And, Lee, I want you to talk about um, why the, uh, the process went well, if you will, at least the examination part, not necessarily the result. I anticipate a great result. But the process and the preparation on it. 
and I would say six months after launching, mm -hmm. right? So I'll never forget. So Brittany comes into our office and says, I just hung up with the SEC. And we thought she was kidding. I said, oh, this is a joke. You know, and she's like, no, no, they're doing a full audit. I know. Compliance officers don't joke about that. They don't. Sure don't. And they That's sure one don't. thing we've oh learned, yes. <laughs> but no, it went great overall. So we, um, I would say we're really actually appreciative in hindsight that we got a lot of the best practices from the SEC um, was very, very helpful. Being only six months in existence, you, know, you want to establish you know, the right habits and practices and procedures right from the very beginning. Um, and to be honest, in interacting with all of the SEC auditors, they were very, very, very helpful and very open as to, hey, here's make a couple changes here, update this, update that. But they were very forthcoming around what to do and what not to do. So I think that was very promising. Yeah, they were all extremely positive conversations that we had with the auditors in the office. I mean, very helpful, very much on your side. They just want to see you be, you know, the best firm that you can. Um, that being said, you know, having Lee in the office was invaluable. I mean, she has so much experience behind her and prepared us, you know, completely for this. We felt extremely comfortable going into it. Well, I certainly appreciate that. <laughs> I think what I'll say is that, as I mentioned before, I mean, these guys have done a really great job. They've been very diligent from the start. You know, talk about mistakes that we were speaking about earlier. I think the biggest mistake from a compliance perspective that advisors make, especially when they break or they start their, you know, their new firm, is to ignore compliance from the start. And, and these guys certainly did the opposite of that. You know, oftentimes we do see that the SEC is coming in much earlier in a firm's life cycle. Uh, they do have a, an initiative around this that, you know, uh, never before examined in the new registrant examinations that they're doing. Um, so we are seeing them earlier. I won't pretend we're not seeing enforcement actions and that the, the SEC hasn't been litigious in certain instances, but we are seeing, uh, especially in the network, we've had, I think, 22 or 23 SEC exams in the Dynasty network alone in the last 24 months. Um, and we have been involved in each one of them. And I, I am finding that the, the staff is a little more collaborative than in past examinations I've been a part of. They are sort of very, uh, you know, as Ali said, sort of educational. They are coming in to say, you know, look, this is not a gotcha experience. It's not meant to be that. We're certainly not here for cause, which of course changes everything. Um, you know, we're here to do a routine examination. They're people too, right? This is their job. They're there to find something. But talk about preparation. I mean, Brandy Wynoke, right from the start, Brittany was great about you know, again, going back to the beginning of this conversation, building out policies and procedures that work for their firm that they could live with, you know, uh, spending time putting technology in place. You know, they use they use what we call the Dynasty Caps uh, platform, which is our compliance automation system. And I can't speak enough about, you know, technology, 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 how that can save people time, how it can streamline your business, free up your CCO to do other things. You know, they put so much focus and effort on this in the beginning. And man, did that show when the staff came in to do the examination. Brittany was wildly prepared. We did some interview preparation and things like that with Allie and Michael as well. And they all spoke beautifully in front of the staff. And, you know, you set that tone from the beginning. The SEC, actually, in their instance, they were they planned to be on site for five days. They left on day three. And they were very friendly in saying, you know, you, you guys are doing a great job. We know how early it is in your life cycle. And, you know, exam's not over, but uh, we're out of here. <laughs> well, that's great. That's exactly what you want to hear. Yes, it is. So if the SEC is coming in, to a firm, are there the top three or top five things that they're kind of looking at consistently across firms? Absolutely. Um, I mean, they're very public. They, they post every year what their examination priorities are for that year. I would say that we're seeing them pretty, be pretty consistent with that in the network. They're very focused particularly on fees, right, advisory fees. Your disclosures are on the fees, your consistencies between your agreements, your ADV, your process, uh, transparency in that. They're very focused on cybersecurity. They're very focused on uh, senior clients and diminished capacity and how you're dealing with protecting those types of clients clients. Uh, you know, again, these are all examination priorities that they have announced, and I, I certainly see them being consistent with questions around those topics. So let's say, for example, unlike Brandywine Oak, a firm is not necessarily prepared, and Sharon, they get one of these dreaded deficiency letters, and it's significant um, for argument's sake. How does a firm deal with that? I mean, is it the mm -hmm. death knell? How do they get past that? Or what do they do to at least answer that in a way that the SEC is satisfied? So I think that um, certainly having an SEC exam in the early part of the firm's life cycle can give you uh, some great takeaways, as, as I think um, uh, both Ali and Mike had acknowledged that they received in their exam. But when it does not go as well and you're receiving that deficiency letter, I think, first of all, you have to understand that 
it still is going to have a silver lining, if you will, that there are going to be changes that you can take away from those identified deficiencies and make those changes and be proactive, perhaps, in other areas. Um, it's also possible that before you even receive that deficiency letter in the interviews with the staff that you have come to understand where you have some weaknesses or some gaps in your compliance program, the more that you can be proactive about making those corrections early on before even you get that deficiency letter. It makes a big difference when we're responding to those and helping firms uh, articulate their current process to be able to demonstrate changes that have been made once the issue was identified. You can't always do that. Sometimes you're, you're heading towards enforcement as a result of a deficiency, but even having an understanding of that and getting the support you need means that you can, right from the outset, uh, articulate a response, a meaningful response to that deficiency letter that's going to help you, again, longer longer range, looking down the road to a potential more serious uh, enforcement proceeding. Yeah, yep. and one thing that I'll that I'll add there too is, you know, again, going back to something we spoke about earlier, recidivism. I think Sharon would completely agree that that the staff is very focused on this. And so what I have seen in my past, not in my dynasty life, thank goodness, but in my consulting life in the past, if the staff identifies a deficiency and you address it in writing and say that you have remediated whatever that issue was, if they come back again and they find that issue again, you better expect that this is going further than it did last time. And, and that's where I see a lot of enforcement actions happen, even in the case of more technical violations. For them, a culture of compliance is, you know, if you've got, I should say, uh, sort of a, a slew of technical violations that is not indicative of a culture of compliance, now they're going to start to dig deeper. And so, you know, I have seen a lot of enforcement action around recidivism in that regard. Yeah, well, I've seen that as well. I mean, firms that have gone through an SEC audit, they get the deficiency letter, um, they respond to the deficiency letter, SEC comes in a year later, only to find out that most of the things in the deficiency letter, the original one, were not addressed. Mm -hmm. And then to your point, they're looking at, you know, potential enforcement actions. What might that look like, Sharon? Unpleasant. Um, so it, it really depends. I mean, if you're going towards um, enforcement, then at some point you're going to have to make a business-minded decision, right? Because, again, this is your business. You need to make a business-minded decision. What does this resolution look like? Um, in most instances, I think you're still seeing that enforcement actions are resolved by a, depending on the, the regulator that you're dealing with, um, a, a settlement document that avoids having to go to litigation. That is the enforcement proceeding. Um, and those enforcement proceedings can be very expensive. They can be very distracting to your business. They can um, often lead to a harsher outcome than you might be able to negotiate up front. But it is you really have to take a um, very broad view of the impact that an enforcement proceeding could have and understanding from the very beginning that you have an issue that you need to you need to remediate in some way. The earlier you can do that the better off you will be. It's those either individuals or firms that are really in, in denial and continue to, under, continue to um, believe that they have no weakness. If, if a regulator has identified it, it's an issue you need to deal with. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to dig your heels in and say the regulator is just wrong, then you have to understand that you're going to spend some significant resources, both in distraction from your business and money, in defending your position. And putting aside for a moment the impact of an enforcement, whether it's a fine or whatever it may be from the SEC, it does require now a disclosure to your clients, and it might have a more long-term impact on the viability of the business. Am I correct on that? Absolutely. I we talked about this earlier as well, but the the uh, only client I've ever fired in in the course of my consulting career, ultimately they had an enforcement action which led to a disclosure, and they had a very large institutional investor in their primary hedge fund, 
that pulled out as soon as they were able to. And they ended up having to deregister with the SEC because they no longer had the asset level that allowed them to remain registered. I mean, there really can be significant impacts to your business. So uh, I think this is why you put the right partner in place from the beginning and, and you avoid these things entirely. And I, I think that it's also before you even have a, a regulator showing up at your doorstep, there are so many resources out there to have an understanding as to what the issues are. Certainly the annual notifications of priorities is one relying on um, your partner's dynasty market council to educate you as to what's going on in the industry. Um, but, I mean, look at look at share classes, for example. How long was, was mutual fund share class being talked about? And it really seems unheard of that a regulator would show up on the doorstep of a firm and that firm would not have looked and contemplated, hey, do we have an issue here? But the firms that we were representing through those types of inquiries, the most successful outcomes were those where they listened to the notifications, this is an issue, they called and said, hey, you know, we don't actually get 12B1 fees, for example, but we have a wrap program. Does this make a difference? Talking about the issues, digging down so it's more than just what they're reading, but what they're reading gave them an indication that, hey, we ought to have an inquiry here and see, do we have exposure? And then they go ahead. They do an analysis of their business. They say, you know what? We might. By the, S by the time the SEC got there, we saw your notifications. We did a proactive search. Here's what we did. Here's how we changed our, our disclosures. And the SEC said, thank you off they go. And I so would true. add one more thing to that is the fact that as an RIA owner, one of the things that I think is compelling in interviewing new families or when new families are going to interview us versus competitors, um, our families gain a lot of comfort knowing that we are audited by the SEC. So they know that, okay, we're held to a legal standard to act in their financial best interest. Um, that's a big differentiator, especially if we're going up against the Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and Ameriprise. Um, so I think from the from a positive standpoint, the SEC audit, I think, is a very helpful thing for clients to know that you know, that's what we're held to. I agree. And, uh, you know, Sharon, one of the points that you made, and, and I think there's a nuance, and I'm going to ask uh, Lee to comment on this. You talked about a wrap fee, right, versus um, other types of fee structures. The way fees are set up in a firm, might that trigger different types of things that you have to be thinking about or disclosures with respect to clients? Oh, absolutely. It's a bit of a loaded question. Um, yeah. The, I think that the primary issue we see around fee structures is a lack of transparency in disclosures. Um, luckily, we didn't have an issue with this in the Brandywine Oak exam, but they certainly inquired about fees quite a bit. So I think there's, there's a lot to think about there. First of all, a wrap fee program, the, the SEC has been pretty clear that they see that as a, just an inherently conflicted uh, uh, process, right, and structure. So they're looking for transparent disclosures. What's in the wrap fee? What's out of the wrap fee? Um, then you step away from the wrap fees for a second and just look at your overall advisory fee structure. What is your advisory fee? Uh, is it fair and equitable across clients that you're managing in a similar fashion? Are your disclosures very clear? Are they consistent with your investment management agreements? There's so many things to view here. And I think to Sharon's point, again, this is why having an internal champion of the compliance program is so critical because every advisor has a bit of a nuance in how they charge their fees. Are you charging in advance? Are you charging in arrears? There's so many things to consider here. And if your disclosures and your investment management agreements are not consistent and clear and accurate, you better believe that when they come in to examine you, they are going to pull apart your custodial statements, right? They're going to look at the debit that they're seeing there. They're going to look at any invoices that you've prepared. They're going to look at your billing process. They're going to look at billing errors that have happened. And if they are finding inconsistencies across all of these things, you're, you're going to have a problem. Yeah, you know, we've seen some recent fines and, and actions, I think, around client at fees and, and the disclosures on that. So it's a really important point. Allie, turning to you, um, I think there's a misconception, if you will, about from firms as they launch that they need to hire a dedicated chief compliance officer, right, and kind of take on that expense. But you guys obviously didn't do that. This isn't uh, Brittany's only job uh, inside of Brandywine. So talk about how she balances the, you know, the responsibilities, if you will, as the compliance person, plus everything else that she does at the firm. Sure. So I think one uh, very important piece that Lee mentioned earlier was really creating a culture of compliance. 
Um, so I think, you know, every member of the firm realizes how truly important this is. Um, so I do have to give a lot of credit to our admin team as a whole for, I mean, we transitioned from Merrill extremely quickly. Um, so, you know, they had a lot on their plate, but they really made sure to take the time to uh, ensure that all the fees being charged were correct, accurate, exactly what we had talked to the clients about and make sure that we were, you know, organized and prepared for the audit. I think because everyone's on the same page, that allows Brittany to concentrate, you know, not just on compliance, but of the other aspects of her, her job. Um, you know, and I think that the culture as a whole really does help her with that. And I would say one of the biggest things, Ed, that we see in speaking with other Merrill Lynch advisors is they have this misconception that they have to hire a full-time compliance officer. So I've talked to a, a dozen teams and say, well, I just don't know if we have the resources to hire a full-time compliance person. And once we kind of explained to them that, you know, we had an administrative partner at Merrill that was able to fill this capacity, uh, partnering with Sharon and Lee, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, that, that's a big, been a big relief. Right. And we really think of compliance, too, as a, it's really a department of people, thanks to, you know, Lee, Lee's help now, Sharon's help from the get-go. I mean, it's not, it's not just one person. It really is, you know, a, a whole group. Perfect. So, Lee, that begs the question, at what size should an RIA start to thinking, uh, think about hiring a dedicated CCO. Is it a billion dollars? Is it five billion? Or is it the complexity of the business? I definitely think it's the latter. I get this question a lot. I don't think that there is a magic number, but I'll tell you that in the Dynasty Network of Advisors, of which there's roughly 50 at this point, we have one dedicated full-time CCO. And even he, uh, I will not name him by name, but even he, when he listens to this, he'll know who he is. (laughs) And even he does wear a lot of hats. So, um, you know, I don't think that there's a magic number necessarily, but I think it's so important to think about streamlining the compliance department the way you do the rest of your business, right? Again, technology, it's your friend. I think that's really critical. In addition, I think, again, you know, partners like Market Council, like Dynasty, we work with other compliance partners, right? Foresight, advanced regulatory compliance. There, there are wonderful firms out there that can help you to really outsource the execution, right? You do not need an internal compliance expert. You can rely on these partners from a, you know, a third-party resource standpoint. You need an internal champion who understands uh, your business and can sort of translate your business to the third-party team. But let the third-party team be your compliance expert, right? I think that that, that outsourcing becomes really paramount. In addition, I think, you know, with respect to technology, what I see oftentimes is that, you know, people are trying to leverage technology to streamline their compliance program. And there are a lot of really powerful tools out there. Um, but when you go buy them off the street, again, you're missing that that connective tissue there, that, that internal champion that can say, okay, well, my compliance policy says this, and that translates to the use of technology in that manner to help streamline. That bridge was missing. And, you know, I think that's where we built out the Dynasty Caps platform and saying, okay, I can actually build that bridge for you. I can take your compliance program and say, well, this is where you can really gain scale. You know, I can teach a computer to push that button. You don't need to push that button. You don't need to paper push. Um, Similarly, Market Council built RIA Glass. I think, you know, there's just so much technology there that people should be thinking about to help free up time. So, you know, that's my, I guess, long-winded response to, I think you can wait quite a long time to need a dedicated full-time chief compliance officer. Uh, but I don't think that there's necessarily a magic AUM number, you know, that, that hits right. that trigger. And if I could just add to that, I think that from the enforcement side or responding to deficiency letters, it's just making sure that your compli- internal compliance resource is really keeping pace with mm-hmm. the growth and complexity of your firm. And you can probably wait a longer period of time for your CCO to wear just that one hat if you're leveraging those outside resources, if you only have one office, for example, if you haven't expanded to multiple branches. So those are all going to be factors in making sure that you are just keeping pace with the need for that resource. Absolutely. So, so let's talk about that for a second. You bring up a good point, Sharon. As firms really start to grow, not only organically, but many are thinking about inorganic growth, um, that very often, and we've seen it inside the Dynasty Network, entails opening up multiple offices, and in some cases, offices in different states. How does a firm think about that and make the changes, if you will, either from the supervision, oversight, or the general compliance culture uh, with multiple offices? So hopefully they do it really deliberately. Um, You know, often a a client will come to us and say that they're going to uh, expand out to another city. And when you begin 
sort of picking apart the details of what's leading to this decision, um, we will often find that it is because they have a buddy that said, hey, I'm, I'm leaving and I'd like to associate with you. So we will often say, you know, lunch is not a plan and it's not a recruiting <laughs> strategy. Um, so so um, being deliberate about, first of all, why are you going to embark down that path to begin with? What are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to cover a geographic area that you don't currently have a, a real presence in? Are you trying to expand your capabilities that perhaps someone's coming in with a particular specialty that you think would be complementary to what you currently offer? So it's being deliberate about that. Once you know why are we doing this, then you really need to have the, the strategy laid out so that you have what you're bringing to the table and you have appropriate documents, you have an offering, and you have contemplated in all of that what is our compliance going to look like? What is our integration going to look like? I mean, what you don't want to end up with is this patchwork of branch offices mm -hmm. where now suddenly you're you're really operating at the end of the day a different branch in every business. That's going to be really challenging as we see from not just an operational standpoint, but from a culture standpoint and, of course, a compliance standpoint. You don't want to be surprised by what's going on in another office. So how do you do it? You start with the beginning so that you're not reinventing the wheel every time you want to execute on particularly inorganic growth. So again, don't be seduced initially by the numbers. Make sure that it fits in your strategic long-term plan uh, as a firm. And Lee, you have some experience in this because we have quite a few firms in the network, the Dynasty Network, that have multiple locations. So how do you work with them differently than you might with a Brandywine Oak that today just has the one location in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I, I think it's exactly what Sharon said, right? It's about deliberate planning. We've got a lot of advisors that are either already or are seeking to be sort of that hub and spoke feel. Um, I, we talk a lot about centralization, right? You've got one chief compliance officer. Perhaps as you do grow, you might have delegates in each of your branch offices, right? You might have somebody who is really your eyes and your ears. Let's talk about, uh, you know, the physical visits that you might want to do. How frequently should those happen? But at the end of the day, as Sharon said, it's all about the fact that when you talk about branding, when you talk about operations, it, if it you know looks and quacks and walks like another uh, RIA, you got to be really careful, right? It really needs to be clear that you are one business, one firm, one compliance program. Um, and so those are a lot of the conversations that we're having is about how to best centralize certain functions, again, how to leverage your third-party resources in the best manner possible, but also what should we be doing physically? Should we have delegates in those offices? Should we be traveling more? What does that look like you know, going forward? I want to thank our guests for their great comments and insight, and I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. I hope you found today's episode entertaining, informative, and helpful. And if you have any comments, questions, or would like to connect with Dynasty or any of our guests, please contact us at podcast at dynastyfp.com. That's podcast at dynastyfrankpeter.com. We look forward to you joining us on our next podcast. And until then, remember, at Dynasty, we live our American dream by helping you realize your American dream.